0: Hi and welcome to the podcast, The Compose Pile. I'm your host, Sean Patrick Hannafin. Um I started this podcast back in January 2008, and now it's almost January 2010, which means we've been doing this podcast for two years, and we've come so far in in all the episodes we've done. We've done so many episodes. In fact, we're now on our sixth episode, so it's. I mean, we've just been doing so much here. No, but it is. It is finally. I'm finally doing a, yet another episode i still don't know if i can ever get this to be a regular thing um but lately if you google um podcasting composing music or composing music podcast or something uh this podcast is now like one of the top results so i've been getting quite a few hits so that's one of the reasons that i kind of want to start doing this again because right now people i think come to the website and are disappointed that it hasn't been updated in a year but, you know, not that many hits that it would be that important. But anyway, um, on today's episode, I was going to uh, analyze a pretty simple piece of music I composed recently called The Secret Lullaby. Um, it kind of sounds Christmassy, I think, because it has a glockenspiel in it. And the melody sound, to me, at least sound a bit Christmassy. And of course, if it has a glockenspiel in it, that's pretty Christmassy, right? Um, and it has tambourine in it that's somewhat Christmassy because it's, you know, jingly and <laughs> stuff. Um, um, if you haven't heard the piece yet, it is up on YouTube under my uh, YouTube account, youtube.com slash wizardwalk. I'll put a link to it in the show notes. Um, hopefully by the time this episode comes out, I'll try to format the orchestral score for it as well. So unlike all my other pieces that, you you know, there aren't, I don't have available scores for them uh hopefully i will start putting up the scores for whatever piece i'm podcasting i hope i am kind of lazy so i don't always do do that kind of stuff but i'm going to try to do it for this episode and it's a pretty simple piece so hopefully it won't be too hard um so i'll put that up um so you'll have that to to go along with um while you're listening to this podcast if you want to at least it'll be available there for anybody who wants to look at it as a pdf file um other than that i think we can just dive right in and start analyzing this thing um oh before i do start i do want to say something about um reverb um all my pieces have reverb obviously if they didn't have reverb you would definitely be able to tell let's see i'm not sure where i should start i guess i could just say what reverb is reverb is basically actually i'm just going to cheat and read the wikipedia at least the first part of the wikipedia article on reverb, because they can probably explain it a lot better than I could. Um, Basically, reverberation is the persistence of sound in a particular space after the original sound is removed. A reverberation or reverb is created when a sound is produced in an enclosed space, causing a large number of echoes to build up and then slowly decay as the sound is absorbed by the walls and the air. This is most noticeable when the sound source stops, but the reflections continue, decreasing in amplitude until they can no longer be heard. The lengths of this sound decay or reverberation time received special consideration in the architectural design of large chambers, which need to have specific reverberation times to achieve optimum performance for their intended activity, such as a symphony orchestra playing music. So I hope, I hope that was well-worded, because I spent a lot of time getting that wording correct. Okay, that was just from Wikipedia. Um... So that might not be correct because somebody might have gone in and edited that to lie because we know that just happens all the time on Wikipedia. So that might not be accurate. I just don't know. Um, Let's see. So that's what reverb is. Um, Actually, I can play a sample if I take the reverb out. And we can see what this piece sounds like with and without reverb, just the first part of it. So this is what it sounds like without any reverb at all. Thank you. that's it without reverb um and then let's listen to the same thing with the reverb that i use in the piece I don't know. I think in the in the version without reverb, the harp doesn't sound too bad. The celesta is okay. The strings sound pretty awful without reverb, in my opinion. And so does the English horn, which is the, that first uh, instrument playing the melody. Um, that's not the English horn. That's the oboe. <laughs> uh, and I call myself a composer. Okay, well, the oboe doesn't sound very good without without uh that sounds terrible when it when there's no reverb doesn't it and it sounds unrealistic that's how you would never you would probably never hear an oboe like that unless it was being played in a very non reverbish place um but you know if it was in a symphony orchestra or even on a if if you bought an album of classical music and uh, the oboe was playing it would not sound like that at all um so that's one of the things that really makes that not only makes digital music it can have you know, Reverb can help digital music sound more realistic. Um, And it's also what gives real music, because it's in real music, so that's why it helps digital music sound more realistic. Now, the reverb I'm using for, that I use for just about all my pieces, is uh, ambience. Um, And if you use Gerriton Personal Orchestra, you can get it for free. Um, And I think there's a link to download it on... Garriton.com and I think if you buy Gerriton Personal Orchestra, some versions of it will actually come with Ambience. When I bought it, it just came with uh, GPO. Um, it's free, um, and it, it works fine for me. And I'll post the exact settings that I use. I'll post a picture to the settings I use on the in the show notes um, if you want to use the exact same settings. Um, those are the settings I mostly use um some of my pieces I'll change it a bit like if i have a solo piano piece which i haven't written in forever um or like my lullaby for cello and piano um i use slightly different reverb that i think sounds a bit better for those you know for such a small amount of instruments but mostly i use the settings that i'll post um and if you use the same settings then that would be really great because then your music would just sound so so much better <laughs> Maybe. Or you could figure out your own settings. Um, you don't have to use Ambience. There are other programs out there you could use. The the big one that comes to my mind right now is Altiverb. Um, and I can't remember who makes it. But if you just Google Altiverb, you can find it. They used to have a trial version on their website uh, that you could download and try out. I don't know if they have that anymore. But back when they did, I downloaded it and tried it. Um, and I couldn't get it to sound... I think I was just too used to how Ambience was making my music sound, so I couldn't really get Altiverb to sound all that great for me. But I think if I spent a lot of time with it, you know, I could get it. And um, Altiverb is a bit different from the way Ambience uh, creates the reverb is purely with you know digital math equations, um, and that's it. But with something like Altiverb to create the reverb, what the creators do is they actually Go to a a symphony orchestra place, what do you call them a hall you know a concert hall, <laughs> a real concert hall um they go to a bunch of those and they set up microphones all around the place and they record something like a clapping noise or not it's not really a clapping noise, but it's something like a clapping noise, you know it's like a big tick, like a kind of thing, and it just and they all the microphones that are scattered around the place record how that sound is perceived in that place. So it's, you know, meant to be much more realistic than the digital math equations that Ambience uses. So it's supposed to be really realistic, and if you can get into it and, you know, really play around with the settings, you could achieve some really fantastic results, I think. But I I don't have the kind of dedication to, to dedicate to reverb. Just reverb. Um... So the the settings that I use just with and plus AltoVerb is kind of costly. So I, you know I tried out the trial and do I really want to pay for it if I if I don't really want to dedicate that much time to making it sound that great? Eh, probably not. It's pretty expensive. Um, whereas Ambience is nice and free, so I'll just use Ambience for now. And I'm sure there are some other programs out there that'll that can also do reverb as well. <laughs> of course there are. So that's so that's reverb. So, you probably, you know, play around with reverb. If if you if you just have Gerriton Personal Orchestra or any digital thing right out of the box without any reverb, and you're wondering why it sounds terrible, it's because you probably want to apply some reverb and do it. And I think that's all I have to say about that. All right, so let's just dive right into this piece, The Secret Lullaby. Like many of my other pieces, it has a harp in the beginning playing arpeggios, and the harp Throughout the entire piece, we'll be playing some sort of arpeggio, like in a lot of my pieces. Um, also, in the beginning, there's a celesta, and there are some strings. Um, and the very beginning, basically, like a lot of other my pieces, it just plays some harmony. It just plays a chord progression, the chord progression that the first melody will use. It just plays through that, and that, again, kind of helps to set the tone for the piece, um, and it gives you the... First chord progression, so you'll it'll repeat that chord progression. So you kind when you hear it again with the melody over it, you'll kind of know what to expect, and you kind of might subconsciously know where the melody might be going, um, because you'll know subconsciously where the harmony is going. Um, at least on your first listen. If it's your you know your fifth listen, then you would probably already have the melody memorized. Um, so the first now the harmony, I think I start in. Let's see the I think the entire piece I can't remember if it changes key or not, I think it does at one point, but it starts in B major. um, let me go through the score here and see when and if it changes. Oh, maybe it doesn't change at all. No, I don't think it does. yeah, it gets louder at some points, you know I mean there' are some orchestrational changes, but the key never changes, so it stays in B major the entire time. uh, let's see, so I have the harp playing arpeggios and I have the strings I have the cello and the viola sort of playing an arpeggio they're kind of going back and forth between two notes um, of the chord Uh, the cello is going between the first and second note of the chord the first and second notes of the triad and the violas are going between the second and third notes in the triad so if I just play the cello it sounds like this And again, that's just playing through the first chord progression, and that's just the cello. Um, above it, the viola is just a just a tiny bit above it, playing some again playing the second and third no- uh, notes of the triad. And with just those two instruments, you basically get all the harmonic information you need. Actually, with just the cello, you really got all the harmonic information you need because you never really need that fifth note when you just have the first and second notes of the triad. Um, But just for a matter of completeness and to create a fuller harmonic sound, I guess, the uh, viola is right above it playing some uh, some more notes of the triad. The second, something like, so they're both playing the second note of the triad, but never at the same time. So when the cello is playing the first note of the triad, the viola is playing the second note of the triad. And when the cello is playing the second note of the triad, the viola is playing the... Third note of the triad. So basically, the viola is just playing a third. It's displaying that you know two note arpeggio a third above the cello. So together they sound like this. so you get the entire chord progression and you get all the notes in all the triads that are being used and i think i only use triads i don't use any major sevenths or anything in this entire piece it's all it's all basic triads um and they're pretty simple triads you know nothing diminished or augmented or anything like that um then i also add in the harp i add in two more instruments the harp and the celesta to kind of complete the orchestration of just this uh, chord progression Um, the harp is just playing it's just playing the tonic and dominant um, upward arpeggios of the triads that sounds like this What I should have said when I was talking about the cello and viola is that the cello goes between the root and the third of the triad and the viola goes between the third and the fifth of the triad. I should really use that terminology. Uh, meanwhile, the harp, through its first set of arpeggios here, it never, plays, it never plays the third of the triad. It only plays the root and the fifth of the triad. And that kind of gives it a spread. I think you have to be careful, especially when the harp is playing lower arpeggios like this. Um, I used to use the third all the time when I was doing harp arpeggios, but when I started doing, I guess, the piece that I composed years ago um, called Trio for Harp, Flute, and Oboe, my first Trio for Harp, Flute, and Oboe, that's when I started to take out that third and just have the root and the fifth of the trio that's being played. Um, And I think that kind of gives, especially when you're in the lower part of the harp, it kind of gives it a better balance um i think the same would probably apply on the piano but i guess it depends on you know how you want to write it you know you're the composer so you can decide um but i take out the third um when it's lower because if you put in that third i think sometimes it could sound muddled but it really depends on what kind of sound you're going for um so that's just playing the the uh, root of the triad and the fifth of the triad and then it plays the root again an octave higher so very simple three-note arpeggios going through the triads. Um and I don't and I'm not using any inversions at all and I don't think I use any inversions in this entire piece so it's all very very basic stuff. Very very easy to to analyze harmonically at least. Um the celesta. Now the celesta is actually the first instrument that comes in. Um and it's playing I guess you could say it's simply playing arpeggios you could you could almost say that these aren't even arpeggios because they're only two notes long, um, but it's just playing the root of each chord and the third of each chord. So you know you don't get the third in the in the harp, but you do get it in the celesta. That sounds like this. It almost sounds like that could be a melody itself. Um, and I guess you could say it is a melody itself. Um, but it's, you know, really playing the root of each triad and then the third of each triad on the uh, upbeats and downbeats. Um, and put those all together and you get the opening of the piece um, with just those four instruments. Together they all sound like this. ¶¶ again i really don't think you even need the harp and the celesta i think all you need are those strings um really if you could say you only really need the cello um but everything else kind of fills it out harmonically and i think they all sound pretty good together um so those are the first eight bars of the piece that give you the chord progression and uh, you know kind of introduce you to how it's going to work orchid how the orchestration is going to work throughout the entire piece, that's kind of the same balance you get for the harmony throughout the entire piece. Um, The viola and the cello go back between those notes of the triad, even though the chord progressions change later on. The viola and the cello, I don't think they, they never stop doing those, that same thing going between the, um, with the cello going between the root and the third of the triad and the viola going between the third and the, fifth of the triad. They never stop doing that. Throughout the entire piece, they're doing that. Um, Sometimes they're harder to hear. I think right in these opening eight bars, they're the easiest to hear because there's no melody playing. Um, But They do that throughout the entire piece, and that never stops. Um, So I think you kind of get used to it as you're listening to the piece. You kind of get used to having those instruments there, giving you the harmony in the background very uh, subtly, kind of. Um, So finally, on the ninth part, the... uh, I should actually... Number of these bars. I'm going to insert measure numbers above every measure, um, just so that if you're reading along with the score of the PDF, you can know where I am. Um, so basically, the melody comes in. That's the first eight bars. The first bar really almost doesn't count because it doesn't have anything there, but one celesta note. But anyway, if we shift everything, you can see that the the melody really comes in on the at the very end of the ninth bar, or really it starts in the tenth bar. Um, and I, I give it to, you, uh, I introduce the melody on the oboe, um, and I'm just going to play the melody just by itself on the oboe, so you can see what that sounds like. Now I wrote that melody on my digital keyboard and that's pretty much the melody that inspired the rest of the piece and I think that's the only uh, melody in the entire piece that I actually wrote on the keyboard um and then all the other melodies you hear in this piece I kind of wrote as I was writing this piece um I think there're only like two or th- I think there're only three other melodies in the entire piece so you know it's not too complicated of a piece so when that melody comes in it comes in on the oboe but you can kind of barely hear it. It also is doubled on the harp very faintly. Um, Let me see. I can play just those two together so you can see what it sounds like with the harp added in. So you can barely hear the harp in there, but you can hear it in there, um especially right at the start of the note. you can hear that kind of pluck of the of the harp, so it kind of gives it a harpish feeling, yeah, I don't know how else to describe that, that kind of sound, but you know that's and I do that a lot i always um I do that a lot of of doubling uh woodwinds with harps, and I also double the woodwind with strings too, which I think um when the repetition comes. I'll put in some strings to double that melody as well, to double that oboe. Um, So, yeah, I do that a lot. It sounds really great, I think, when you have a woodwind doubled with a harp playing the exact same melody. And just kind of, it's like they meld together and become one kind of stringy, woodwindish instrument. Um, Anyway, so, all together, all the instruments, they sound like this. So I think the melody kind of takes over and kind of becomes the main thing that you hear. But at the same time, you can kind of faintly hear the celesta still in the background. It almost sounds like it's playing a counter melody, um, even though it's just playing this very simple uh, root notes and uh, the third of the triad. Um, and then, of course, you have the strings very, you know, still there in the background. Um, but your focus is definitely not on the strings anymore. It's on the melody that's being played. Um, if you're a regular listener, at least, um, then I have the. Again, it's kind of it might be kind of hard to hear. I'm not sure how easy it is to hear, but when the melody, so the melody plays through, and then it's going to repeat. Which I do a lot when I first introduce a melody, I have it play one more time, so you get it twice. And when it when it plays twice. You kind of know what to expect Even if it's your first time listening You kind of know that it's going to be the same thing So whatever parts of the melody you've memorized At that point you know will come again So you kind of have that Even if it's subconscious you have that expectation that it, Of of where that melody is going um, Because you just heard it um, So I have this Now I change the orchestration a bit When the melody plays again Which of course I always do When you have a melody repeat itself <sighs> Phone call. Thank you for your call. Okay, where was I? Oh, yeah, so when the melody repeats, you kind of always want to give it some different orchestration, unless you're writing minimalism, which I'm not. Um, you know, minimalism, you just write something and then copy paste, copy paste for the entire thing. But for this, I'm not writing minimalism. Uh, so I do have it a bit... Actually, in some of my earlier pieces, like when I was writing midis a long time ago, I would have some things that were like the almost exact... You know, I have a melody play, then I played in... I, it, it almost is like minimalism in some of my really early pieces, where right? I just copy-paste. Um, but now I'm not trying to... I don't want it to sound exactly the same. I want to kind of build on it. Um... And I could do a variation on the melody, but this entire piece is very simple, so there aren't really many variations on any of the melodies that play. It's just the melodies, 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 and that's it, which I think is fine. And that's the kind of music I enjoy anyway, so that's good. So here um, I have, let me see, I have the melody in the in the oboe again, um, but this time I'm doubling it in not only the harp, but I'm also doubling it in the bassoon which you can barely hear, but I think it kind of fills out the bass when you're listening to it, even though you can barely hear it. Um, and I have it playing in the harp again, though I already said that, and I have it playing in the violins, just the first violins, very faintly. So together those all sound like this. And of course, when you can play it, when I play it like that, you can really hear the bassoon. When I play it, you know, just give it the, just give all the instruments that are playing the melody a solo. Then you can really hear the bassoon. But as soon as we get all that other stuff playing the harmony, um, it kind of becomes harder to hear. Um, I also add some percussion, and i will get to that in just a minute. But first, I want to mention that there's it's very faint but you can definitely hear it because it kind of stands it's kind of high above everything else and it kind of stands out melodically because it's playing something that none of the other instruments are playing and that's the harp no it's not it's the flute the harp is playing the same thing it was before but the flute is playing a counter melody and that sounds like this And I think the, um, the flute playing around those notes in that register, um, especially with the, with the reverb going on, as we discussed earlier, um, I think the GPO uh, flute sounds really excellent in that register. Um, now that melody, when I wrote that counter melody, I kind of had to write it while listening to the other melody that's playing below it and the chord progression, because you want it to go harmonically with, you know, you want the counter melody to go with the harmony, but you also want it to stand out from the melody that's already there. You want it to be playing different notes, basically, of the triad. You want, it to, you, want um, you want the focus of the melody at any point to be on a different note of the triad than the other melody that's playing is. And if you can get it to move in a different direction, you know, can get its contour to move in a different direction, that also helps it stand out. Um, And later in the piece, when I have two other melodies playing, I do try to have the contour. But in this, I didn't really focus so much on the contour, so much as on making the melody make sense by itself. One thing you'll see that I do in the melody is that when when the first melody that's being played on the oboe below it, actually, let me go ahead and play just those two melodies together so you can see kind of how they sound together. Now, the oboe is louder, and of course, the melody that the oboe is playing is doubled in a bunch of other instruments. So that melody really stands out, while the flute melody is, you know, that's the only instrument playing that melody. So it's kind of by itself, kind of hard to hear if you're not listening for it. But, you know, you can still hear it subconsciously. You can still hear it, at least that the flute's playing something. But anyway, um, you'll notice, what I do when, the, when the oboe's playing, you know, like eighth notes and quarter notes, the flute is playing quarter notes and a half note so the values of the notes are different so that while there's more going on in the oboe there's less going on in the flute while there's more going on in the flute there's less going on in the oboe so that also helps to kind of differentiate them so that you can hear one over the other whereas if i keep if i if i had kept the note values exactly the same it wouldn't you know it wouldn't stand out as much it would sound like just and it would be just basically a some as uh, somewhat doubling of that a harmonic doubling of that uh melody of some sort anyway, and then you can see what I did at the very end is that I kind of in that last measure let me just replay the uh, those last two measures of the melody you can see at that point basically the flute is doubling the oboe but an octave above it so. The melodies kind of come together and meet and end in the same way, which I do a lot, and a lot of composers do a lot when they have you know two melodies playing at the same time. They kind of come together in the end and play the same kind of end. Um, the flute in the in the if you look at measure twenty four, you can see that the flute does play a slight variation on the ending there, so it does still kind of stand out. But other than that, it's all the same notes as the oboe has, just an octave higher. Um. So they do come together in those in in the final. Final, measures there. Um. Other than that, oh uh, the percussion, I didn't get to. So I have some tambourine in there, and I also have a uh. Jingly thingy. Whatever you call it, a jingle bells thing, whatever. Um. And that sounds like this. So just those percussion instruments um, accenting some of the beats. Um, And I also have the bass drum. And that's just playing whole notes right at the beginning of each measure. So together those two sound like this. And of course if you play it solo like that it makes the bass drum sound really loud. Um, but when you have all those other instruments playing, you know, it's kind of... You can still definitely hear it, especially in the bass. You can still definitely hear that the bass is stronger. Um, and that's, you know, one of the reasons why is you've got the bass drum in there. But it doesn't stand out quite as much when you have all the other instruments in there. Finally, to help fill out the bass, I also put in um, the double basses come in, and they simply play whole notes of the root of the chord that's being played. So if you want to analyze a harmony... In these measures, you could just look right at the double bass notes, because they're just playing the roots of the chords. Um, No no inversions at all, again, and no real consideration given to uh, the counterpoint, because they're just playing the root chords. Um, So the double bass, if if you just want to hear the double bass as a solo, it sounds like this. Again, it sounds pretty loud when you're listening to it by itself, but once you know it's part of the piece, and all those melodies are playing along with you know all the instruments that we had playing the harmony before, it kind of you can still definitely hear it filling out the bass, making it stronger, making the orchestration stronger. But at the same time, it doesn't take over. You know, you know your focus still isn't on that; it's still on the main melody. You can just hear that it's been embellished a bit by the new instruments and you know the loudness of some of the other instruments that are in there now one thing i will say is right before this melody repeats on the measure before it you can see that that's when the double bass comes in and that's when the tambourine comes in um and i do that a lot right before right before you have a um a melody come in that's supposed to be embellished, that's supposed to sound stronger, you want to prepare for it right on the measure or the two measures, maybe even the four measures, but definitely not the four measures in a piece like this. But in this piece, it's just in the first measure. But you want to prepare for it. Um, And you can do that in a, you know, there are tons of different ways to do that. But if you look in my piece here, I have on the measure before it, that's when the double bass comes in on the root note of the triad. That's when it really comes in, and you can see that it has a, um, whatever you call it, a hairpin, which basically tells whoever was playing the bass to start quietly and then crescendo that note, so it starts quietly and then it kind of fades in. Um, And the tambourine also plays just the two notes right before that first beat that it comes in. And that kind of prepares you for the orchestration changes that are now coming very it happens very fast but when you're listening it it can definitely make a big difference um to have those changes come in just the measure before probably the probably most i think composers will do that naturally without having to think too much about it but i mentioned it anyway um now we get a new melody and if you analyze the structure of all my pieces, I think you'll find that I do this a lot. Sometimes the second melody that comes in, or you know, one of the melodies near the beginning, is kind of... I'm not sure what to call it. It's like a one-time melody. You get it once, and you never get it again in the entire piece. I don't really know why I do that with with a lot of my pieces, but it's, it is there in a lot of my pieces, where you get the main melody first... Or you know some kind of melody first, and then you get this kind of secondary melody that you hear once and then never again. Um, some I have no idea why. Just something, just something that happens with my pieces. This melody is played on the flute, and it's doubled with the strings playing very faintly. Like I said before, I often double the woodwinds with the strings. That sounds; those two instruments sound like this together. Playing the melody, playing this new melody that starts on measure 26. Now that melody does, for, first of all, you can see that the, or you can hear that the flute is the main instrument of the melody and the strings are playing very faintly below it. But you can still definitely hear them. They still definitely kind of meld together and become one instrument, um, which again is something I do a lot with the woodwinds and strings is have them play the exact same notes, but have the strings very subtly in there. So you can, almost, you, so you know, they're very faint. But you can still definitely hear them. They definitely add a quality, a uh, sound quality to the... But I keep the woodwinds the main instruments that you're listening to. So what you might notice if you analyze the harmony for this melody, um, you can see that it kind of starts... The entire piece uh, the la- and the last two melodies before this melody were all in kind of the minor mode. They all started on a minor chord and ended on a minor chord. What this melody does is it starts on that minor chord... So it starts in the mood, in that minor mood that the entire piece has been in so far, but it ends on a major chord. So basically what this melody does is helps kind of shift everything from that minor to now, the, uh, to now a major kind of feeling for the entire piece. Let me see. Uh, the harp arpeggios also change a bit. So they're no longer playing those three notes. They're now playing arpeggios in eighth notes, and they're playing a different pattern going up and down, Um, that sounds like this. Ah, doesn't that sound good? And again, the, um, the cellos and violas... Oh, actually, you might also notice that before, in the, last, in the last melody, the harmony was changing only every measure. You only had a harmonic, uh, a, change of, a change of chord every measure. But now the chord is changing twice in a measure, so it's changing every half note, basically. Um, and at this point, you might also hear that the double bass has dropped out and the bass drum has dropped out. And all of the rest of the percussion has dropped out. The bassoons have also dropped out. So at this point, it's becoming lighter. You know, it's becoming light. Yeah, it's becoming lighter again. The bass is dropping out, and so we're just—it's becoming calm. I guess you could say it's becoming calm again. Um, another thing you might notice if you're looking at the score is that the melody starts off with the flute, but in those last four bars of this melody, the oboe also comes in. To double that melody, um, so those so with all the instruments playing, those bars sound like this. Now here comes the melody. One of probably my favorite melody of the entire piece comes in next, um, and you know we're in major now, so the entire the mood of the piece I think is a bit different at this point. Um, and I changed the harp arpeggios, so now let's just listen to the harp arpeggios. They sound like this. can see that the harmony, you can kind of, well, I don't know if you can tell, but wh- what exact chords the, harp, the uh, harp is playing, but it's playing one of my favorite chord progressions, which in Roman numerals would be 1, 4, five, six, four five. Um, In my piece uh, the across the kingdom in my piece, I have that a lot in there. I don't think I have it in the same kind of style. I have it as in this piece, but I have a lot of the one four five one four five six four five blah 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 six three four five or whatever I do in that piece, or one three four five. I really love the four five, um, especially in some of my more recent pieces. I've been using the four five a lot. That shift from the four to the five. Um melodically there's just a lot of stuff you can do between that four and five it's it's when you're trying to compose a melody for the chord progression four or five it's just it to me it just seems really easy and almost anything you do from you know any note Well, I don't want to say any note but almost any note you can just make it sound really good I think in my opinion it's easy to make stuff that sounds good in there And I guess one of the reasons is because it's so common. So many composers do it, so you're probably used to hearing it a lot. Anyway, so that melody, let me just play the melody by itself. It comes in on the oboe, but it's also being doubled by a few instruments. The one you can really hear it being doubled by is the glockenspiel. What you might not be able to hear it being doubled by, but that's still definitely there, is the maramba. It's playing kind of faintly in there, but you can still kind of hear can still kind of hear it in there. Um, This is what all those instruments sound like together, playing this new melody that now comes in on measure 34. I think the Glock and Spiel at this point sounds really great. Um, it really gives the entire piece a different kind of mood, and it really goes great with the, with the, with the oboe there. Now, if I take out the maramba, which you probably could hardly hear, it's, it'll sound like this. And if I put the maramba back in, it now sounds like this. So again it's something I think hopefully you could hear that, I could definitely hear it. But it's something that, you know, it kind of gives the orchest- it kind of gives the orchestration of that melody a very different feel to it, but at the same time it's not something you might really notice because it's not the maramba is definitely not calling any attention to itself. It's kind of faintly in there, but it is changing the sound of the melody there. And then when the melody repeats on measure thirty eight, it gets doubled, right on the same note. With the flute. So when that comes in, it all sounds like this. So we have those four different instruments playing the exact same melody, and I think that kind of makes them all kind of mesh together. Um, and they sound really good together. The only other things that are playing at that point are the harp and, of course, the cellos and the violas playing those arpeggios. Um, So all together, we can see that everything sounds all together like this... I think when that flute comes in on measure 38 you can really hear that the melody is being embellished um because the you know the flute definitely gives it a stronger but yet you know it kind of gives it a different feeling to the melody so that all sounds pretty good i think um now in this uh, in these next bars i guess you could say i keep the harmony exactly the same uh in the harp, and I keep the harmony exactly the same in the harp and the violas and the cellos. They're playing the exact same chord progression, the exact same notes, really. That's just a copy-paste. But now I'm going to play a different melody over this chord progression. So this is one of those melodies that I composed to a chord progression instead of doing it the other way. Now, again, on, I guess, in this sense, it's measure, if you're looking at the story, you can see on measure 43 and measure 45, I again have those you know that's when the 4 5 the triads 4 5 are playing uh that chord progression that's the one that I said you know was really good and it's really easy for me at least I think it sounds awesome and I you know almost any melody you can play over those two chords just sound pretty good you know for the ending part of a melody so it was a lot of fun to compo- it's I always find it a lot of fun to compose any melody that ends with a four or five. Um, even though, you know, I guess it's not very innovative and or anything. But who cares? It's a lot of fun. Um, so I have it playing a new melody at this point, starting on measure 42. And I do something that I have, again, it's something that I've kind of been doing a lot more in just this past year in my pieces. And that's starting a melody not on the first beat, but starting it, you know, having it I either have like a quarter note rest or a or a um or an eighth note rest right at the beginning so the melody doesn't start on the first beat it'll actually in this one it starts on the second beat so I have a quarter note rest um and I and I have been doing that I don't know why I've been doing it it's just fun to do I guess um I think the first I can't remember what the first piece I did that was in Um, but in, if you listen to a lot of my old pieces, I hardly do that at all in a lot of my early pieces. Um, but I definitely have it a lot in across the kingdom and I have it in Island of the Dragons with that melody that comes in on the the low whistle or something. Anyway, when that melody comes in, it's on the oboe and the violins. And then when it plays again, it gets doubled with a clarinet playing the exact same notes. So kind of like in the previous in the previous melody it started on the oboe and then got doubled in the flute. This time it starts on the oboe but gets doubled in the in a in a clarinet. And it also I also put in the maramba again when the when it repeats itself. Again, it, the maramba is something that you can kind of barely hear but it's still definitely there. So, um I'm going to play just the oboe just the violin and I'll go ahead and put in the clarinet and the maramba su. So those will come in when the melody repeats on 46. Like on measures 43 and 45. And then on measure 45. Those are both over that 4-5 progression I was talking about, and I just, for some reason, I just love those. I just think it sounds terrific. Again, not very innovative music-wise. You know, composers have been doing that for a long, long time, but I just think it sounds terrific, so I've been doing it a lot recently. So if those melody fragments sound familiar to you, that's probably why. It's because they probably are familiar to you know it's because you've probably heard them a million times before. And then one thing you'll notice is that I was writing this when I was writing this melody, I knew that I wanted to have the melody that's right before it come in over it, which is why I wrote it to the exact same chord progression. But when I was writing this melody, I also was writing it while I was listening to the melody um of the melody that was right before this because i knew that they would be together um they were meant to be together they were written to be together um so if you see if you're looking at the score you can see on measure 50 that um in the piccolo that first melody comes back and it'll be doubled in on the glockenspiel and the harp whatever um so that it'll be above the melody that's playing now but they were meant to be together so if you look at the contour of that uh, of the um, you can see that the contour of both of the melodies kind of go in different directions Um, and that's on purpose because I was trying to make them so that they stand out from each other but still sound good together so again when when you're writing two melodies that are meant to be together you know you probably want to write them while you're listening to one you know you write one first and then you write the other one while you're listening to that one so that you can be sure they go together. And then you can go back and have, you know, one of them play just by itself. And then it sounds pretty cool when the other melody comes in. Because they go together so well, but you know, hopefully they also sound good standalone. Now I don't know if this melody that starts here on measure forty two, the one that I've been talking about, this one. I don't know if that melody sounds that amazing on its own because it is written to be a counter-melody to the melody that came right before it. So I don't know if it sounds that amazing on its own, but I think it does, you know, it sounds okay stand-alone. I mean, if I didn't think it sounded okay stand-alone, I wouldn't, I wouldn't put it stand-alone. Um, and again, the harmony is the same. The harp is playing the exact same arpeggios, and the violins and cellos are you know doing what they're doing through the entire piece so if we put all that together it sounds like this now a lot happens in these uh next few measures but basically if you listen to it, you can you can kind of tell pretty easily what's happening it's basically just building up and building up um i have the first melody come back um i say in the in the uh, piccolo uh the glockenspiel and the harp um so altogether that sounds like this And then from there on, it's all just building up and building up. Basically, it's just adding instruments and adding instruments to double those two melodies. Um, and I think i make the bass stronger as well. Um, there, And you can see that, um, if you're looking at the score, you can see on measure 54 how I make the bass stronger. I add in the bass drum, um, and I add in timpani. The timpani is playing just... I think it's the timpani is playing just root chords of the triads not root chords it's playing the root notes of the triads I don't know here's what the timpani sounds like by itself It sounds really loud again when you're playing it by itself, um, but you know it mixes with everything. So it's just playing some. I think it's mostly playing the root notes of the of the chord in the triad that's that's playing at that moment, um, for the most part. I also have the bass drum in there, just pounding on the on the beats, on the first uh, beat of each measure. Um, and then I have another something that you ca- It's kind of faint, so maybe you can't hear it as well as everything else. Um, but you can still definitely hear it kind of maybe even subconsciously in the background, kind of making the bass stronger, and that's the double basses come in again. Um, but this time, they're not just playing whole notes. This time, they're playing staccato notes, um, staccato eighth notes. Um, they're playing in octaves. So that sounds like this. The reason I have it playing in octaves is because I would normally just double it in the cellos, but the cellos are still doing the arpeggios with the violas, so I have the I have them playing in octaves. Now if a real orchestra were to play this, I guess that would have to be Divici or something. What do we call it? Divi? I guess you call it DiVici? When you have or divi Divisi divi- divi- whatever. Where you have the double bass section of the orchestra would be playing, you know, half of them would be playing the lower note and half of them would be playing the the upper note but of course in garrett and personal orchestra that doesn't happen you just have the entire double bass section playing both notes so it sounds doubly strong that's just one of the weaknesses of of you know composing with a digital orchestra instead of a real orchestra but you know what can you do nothing um and that kind of creates a pulse you know, as I had earlier, I just have them playing the whole notes, and there's no pulse there. There's kind of you still kind of get that pulsing from the cellos and the violas because they're playing the eighth notes, but here I'm really accenting each of the eighth note beats. I'm accenting both of those, so you really get that pulse in there, um, and I think that kind of makes things more exciting, and it kind of makes it sound like it's building towards something, which it is. So it kind of makes it, it kind of gives it a more exciting feel instead of instead of a calmer feel that we had earlier. Um, so that comes in playing those staccato notes. Um, One thing I have been doing recently in a lot of my pieces that you'll hear here is the harp playing a glissando. Now, if this were to be played by a real orchestra, I don't know, you might want to have two harps. Because if I play just the harp part, you can kind of hear... Let me play just the harp part starting on measure uh, on measure 50, just the harp part. so i have those harp glissandos so if this was being played by a real orchestra and if you look at the score you can see that the the harp is playing those um lower arpeggios it keeps playing those even while it's playing the glissando so i don't know i guess a good harpist could probably play both at the same time but i don't know I, you know i'd have to talk to a real harpist about it and see what they would want to do i don't know if that would make if they would need if they could play those lower arpeggios while playing the glissando. I don't know, it's pretty easy, so they probably could. Um, And it's just a a pretty simple diatonic glissando there. And what that glissando does is because with right right after each of those glissandos on the measure that the glissando is leading up to, I have, I introduce the new instruments. I introduce the bass drum, um, the staccato notes uh, in the double basses, and I'm making those louder. You know, I'm building up the orchestration at this point. Um, And if you look on measure, what is it, 54, you can see that I also add some more strings in there to double that melody. So I'm just doubling the melodies, making the bassist strings all throughout, just adding instruments and making the instruments that are already there, just making them louder. So what all that glissando does is just kind of prepare you for the orchestration changes that are coming in the next measure. Just very simple preparation, and I've been doing that a lot where I use the harp glissando to kind of prepare you for a change that's coming. And that's what it does, basically. Um if it was in a climax of the piece, if this were the this is you know, this is building up to the climax of the piece. But if I was doing a real climax of the piece, I might have, you know, harp harp glissandos. Like if you listen to um Voyage of the Dreammaker or Across the Kingdom, I have a lot of those harp glissandos playing and playing and playing, just kind of making each the measure right after it kind of building up to that measure. It kind of makes things a bit more exciting. I've been doing that a lot so, so I've been doing that a lot so I should probably stop doing that soon because it might get a bit stale, you know that technique might get a bit boring soon. Um, anyway, it keeps building up and you, you can just look at the score to see how it builds up because it's not really that interesting. But by the time we get to measure 62, a new melody comes in and basically this is the climax of the piece it's not too big of a climax because it is a lullaby so i'm i was trying to keep the entire beast kind of calm uh, you know at least a bit calm not too calm so i don't have any symbols in here nothing huge i don't have any really rapid string arpeggios that i might normally do in a in a in a real piece and you know in in a really exciting piece um i don't have any really loud harp arpeggios that harp arpeggios are just still playing in the 8th note upward arpeggios that they've been doing. So everything stays pretty calm. Um, though you'll see on measure 65 that there's yet another harp glissando in the middle of that climax, just because, you know, of what I said earlier, it just kind of makes it just a bit more exciting and kind of prepares you for any orchestration changes that are coming. Anyway, in the uh, climax here that starts on measure 62, it's pretty simple melody, and I just have a bunch of a bunch of instruments playing this melody. I don't. I think if I w- if I were gonna reorchestrate this, I'd probably go back and make a counter melody or two in here so that you could get a fuller sense of the harmony. Um, I have a bit of that in the strings. You can see that the 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 violins number one and the violins number two are playing kind of like a third apart, so you can kind of get some a fuller sense of harmony out of. Uh, out of the, those two instruments. But overall, the main melody that's playing is pretty strong, so you mostly just get that, and you don't get much of the harmony. Um, you don't get much harmonic fullness with this with this as well. And if, uh, let me see, in measure 66, you can see when the um, oboe is playing kind of third below... And in measure 66, when the clarinets come in, one of them is playing a third below. So that kind of helps to give a fuller harmonic uh, sound uh, to the melody that's playing. But the main melody is the strongest, so you mostly just get the main melody. So there's, it doesn't sound too full. Um, so on measure 62, you can see that it's being played by a bunch of instruments. It's, play- it's being played by the uh, flute. It, an octave above it, it's being played by the piccolo. A third below it, it's being played on the oboe. And it's again, it's a third below, so you can kind of get a fuller sense of the harmony. Um, it's being played on the horns, the French horns. Um, it's being played on the trombone. Um, it's being played on the maramba. It's being played on the glockenspiel. And it's being played in the strings. So you've got a bunch of instruments just doubling the heck out of this melody. Um, If I was going to go back and orchestrate it, yeah, I might kind of vary, maybe put in a counter melody or something, but I'm too lazy to do that. Um, And then on measure 66, just the clarinets come in. So altogether that sounds like this. (laughs) that great without the um, harmony, but those are what all the instruments that are playing the melody sound like. You can see on on measure 61, the measure right before the melody begins, I again have that harp glissando, which is preparing you for the orchestration changes that's coming up, but I also have the uh, trombone, since the trombone is going to come in and, and double that melody, I also have the trombone playing kind of a little glissando of its own, almost. That sounds like this, starting on measure 61. So, uh, again, it just plays those four notes before it starts the melody. And I do that a lot, especially when I'm bringing some more brass into the piece. I'll have it either going upward like that or downward. Um, And I've been doing that for a long time. Even if you listen to Dragon of the Mist, you can hear a bit of that. Just to prepare you for this new instrument that's coming in instead of just boom giving it to you, it kind of kind of comes in a little before that, so you know that it's gonna be there, um even if subconsciously um just because it's you know it's just a few seconds or maybe even less than a second before that melody comes, but it gives you something to prepare for now the melody ends on measure on I guess measure seventy it's gone the melody is over and the climax is over so right before that you can see that i have yet another harp glissando but this time the harp glissando is going down um and then that probably i don't know if you were listening to this the first time what that might signify but it's not an upward glissando so you know it's probably not going to become even yet bigger climax it's it's now fading away and it and actually doesn't even fade away just boom it just it's just gone um, and that's it. So it kind of just descends into nothingness. Um, and then I have two measures of almost silence, starting on measure 70. I just have... It It almost goes back to where it was at the beginning. It just has the harp arpeggios um, and the violins... Not the violins. It just has the harp arpeggios, the violas, and the cellos playing the harmony. However, I do add in the... A double bass and now it's just playing pizzicato kind of like the timpani was playing just the root notes of the triad now the uh, pizzicato of the double basses is playing the those some of the root notes on the up and down beats the root note and I think it's also playing the third of the triad on the up and down beats so you kind of get that kind of that beat on the first beat of the measures um And what that does, I always think that the pizzicato in the double bass is almost kind of like, it sounds a lot like, to me, it sounds a lot like a timpani, um, but kind of a lower timpani. It kind of has the same quality of a timpani, but it's like really, it's like a more subtle timpani. Um, So in some ways, I I kind of use it kind of like a timpani in some ways. Um, if I wanted to add a timpani, but I wanted the timpani to be very, very faint and less timpani-like, I guess. And then I also add in one more instrument that I use a lot, and that's a percussion instrument, and that instrument is the mark tree, um, or the chimes, or whatever you want to call them. Um, The ones in GPO sound really great, I think, and they sound like this. And I also have the the timpani playing one final note there. But I do have this, the mark tree. I have that in there because at this point on measure 70, you're really getting a big orchestration change because so many instruments are just dropping out completely, just never to be seen again. Well, some of them to be seen again, but, you know, just boom, they're gone quite suddenly. So that kind of, I think, having that mark tree play something kind of helps the transition from so much to so little i don't think um sometimes if i were writing if if this were meant to be a more exciting piece i'd probably put a little more um in addition to the mark tree sometimes i use the gong for that kind of things or the cymbals. if this were a more exciting piece i might have the gong or the cymbals at some point in there too if i was going to have a big orchestration change like this with so many instruments dropping out um Basically, I think with those instruments, to me, what they kind of do is they kind of cover up all the other sounds. So with all the other sounds, you can kind of change whatever you want. So they're really good for transitions because your focus at that point will be on those percussion instruments that are just playing these pitches all over the place. So then with all the other instruments, you can change them whenever you, would to whatever you want. And then when those percussion instruments kind of fade away, the orchestration can be almost anything you want. You know, they just kind of cover everything up. It's like putting a curtain over the orchestra and then having, you know, make any changes you want. And then, you, then the curtains open back up and you have what you want to be there. And so you don't really have to worry about, you know, any kind of orchestration changes that really make real sense. You can just do whatever you want. So that's a kind of something I do a lot, and it works for me. I hope it works for you, too. <laughs> um, now, on measure 72, I have that melody come back in. You know, the the melody that I said was probably my favorite melody of the piece. Um, kind of that calm lullaby, kind of Christmassy. I think it's a bit Christmassy, especially when it's being doubled with a clock and spiel. It sounds a bit Christmassy to me. Um That melody, and I'll just play it. It comes in on the oboe yet again, and the Glockenspiel, and the Maramba, and it sounds like it sounded before, just like this. So it's kind of like a return to the calmness. But again, I don't make it exactly the same like it was before. In addition to having those pizzicato in the double basses that are now kind of, you know, accenting those uh, the beats, it now I now add in another uh, counter melody, but this time in the clarinet. So it has a little clarinet counter melody, and that counter melody sounds like this. I think the clarinet sounds really great. It's just perfect for that counter melody that's in there. Um, especially when I have, I have the glockenspiel and, and I have the harp playing and I have the maramba playing, and those are all kind of higher-pitched instruments. I think the clarinet just sounds really great as a counter melody to those playing lower because it really stands out. Um, not just in the register it is, but just because of the instrument it is. Just the clarinet, the tone of the clarinet really stands out. So it's just perfect for the counter melody. Um, When I put it all together, it all sounds like this. And you can hear that uh, pizzicato in the double basses, to me, sounds kind of timpani-like, even though, but, you know, not quite timpani-like, because it's not a timpani, it's double bass. Um... But you can definitely hear that accenting, the beats in the bass, in the lower bass parts. Um, and then when it repeats itself, um, the flute comes in, and I have that melody that was being played by the clarinet, that counter melody. I have that being doubled very faintly, very, very faintly in the strings. Um, just so that because that first melody gets stronger with the addition of the flute, so that countermelody also gets just a little bit stronger with the addition of those strings. And then I have basically a complete return to the beginning of the piece. I think the instrumentation is almost exactly the same as it is in the beginning of the piece, except for the addition of those pizzicato in the double basses. And it just plays that first melody again, starting on measure uh, 80. Again, it has the flute playing that counter melody high above it, but you know, kind of faintly, so it doesn't kind of take over the melody. But you can still kind of hear the flute playing something in there. So, on measure eighty, it goes right back to the beginning, and sounds like this. Now, on measure eighty-seven, you'll notice, if you're looking at the score, there's basically this is going to be the end of the piece here coming up um i'll measure 90 it ends for sure but i measure 87 we're preparing to end so we've just played the end of that melody and basically all we're going to do is going to play the end of that melody again but slow it down Uh, you know something that people do all the time in music um the the tempo up until this point has been tempo 90 and now we're going to uh with this uh symbol retardando we're going to slow the tempo down from 90 uh, beats per minute to 60 beats per minute in the next three bars um you kind of have to be careful you kind of have to when you want to do a retardando with it's really nice it's kind of if you were giving it to an orchestra they could probably just do it by ear and not have to worry but when you're doing it with a digital orchestra and you're doing it with a score a digital score you kind of might have to play around with those values. Because you don't want it to go, you don't want it to become too slow too fast, if that makes sense. You know, you don't want to have it go from 90 to, say, 20 or something in one bar. You know, that would just sound crazy. Um, But at the same time, you don't want it to slow down too slowly. So you kind of have to play around with those values. Um, In Overture 4, it's really easy. You can just double-click on the retardando symbol. In Overture 4 it's pretty easy, you can just double click on the retardando symbol um, and it gives you a list of options of things that you can make that symbol do to the score. Um, And if you double click on it in Overture, there's a playback window that'll pop up, an edit expression window that'll pop up, and under that edit expression window you can do playback editing. And there's a button for tempo, you just click that, put in the values you want. I have from 90 to 60 for three bars. So it takes some fooling, fooling around to get that to where you want it, but then once you got it, it's pretty easy. And then you just click OK, and Overture does the rest for you, so you don't have to draw in any tempo curves or something. Now that's something, tempo tempo itself is something that's kind of a weakness, I guess, of doing these digital orchestrations, because with a digital orchestra, the tempo is always exactly the same always and it's just easy to keep it exactly the same and it's always perfect it's always right on the beat whereas if you had a real orchestra playing something you know the tempo is going to go up and down and up and down even even if very slightly with whatever the um conductor wants or however the performers are performing it so if you really wanted to make a digital orchestration as realistic as possible you probably you you might want to draw the tempo curves um or with whatever programming you're using, you know, change the tempo a lot, you know, even just by a little, because that can really add in a lot of realisticity. But it's also a lot of work, and if you don't have a good ear for it, it's probably way too much work. Um, And I don't think I have much of an ear for it, and I definitely don't have the patience for it. So, for all my pieces, the tempo is pretty much completely perfect. Um, And, you know, if I'm doing a retardando or an accelerando like I am at this point, you know, it's just it just happens in just a few measures and it's very precise in how it happens. You know, it just goes from like ninety, exactly ninety beats per minute to exactly sixty beats per minute or something very exact over an exact number of bars. It's very easy to um it's very precise, I guess you could say. Um so that slows down for the next three bars and it just re repl- it's just really a copy and paste of that last fragment of the melody um and so that sounds like this and that's the end of the piece um You can see, I think I do take out, if you look at the score, if you're looking at the score, you can see that in that rip, it's not an exact copy-paste like I just said it was. I was lying. (laughs) Because I do take out the violins, and I probably could have taken out some more of the instruments just because it's, you know, it's the end, so things have to be fading away. So I did take out the violins. I probably could have taken out, you know, maybe the clarinet. Do I have the clarinet? I think I do. Yeah, I have the clarinet doubling that melody. So I could have taken the clarinet out or something, Um, you know, just to kind of make that last repetition of the melody just a bit weaker because it is coming to an end. The only other thing I do is, um, you can see that I take out the celesta on measure 89. It, It stops playing there. You can see the only other thing I do is the harp arpeggio on measure 89. Instead of being an exact repetition, it goes up an octave higher, so it almost—it's almost like it's building to a final note. If I just play the harp part, it sounds like this. So you, it almost, to me, it almost sounds like it's going to be playing like da, da 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 da, bring. You know, just you know, some. It's, it sounds to me like it's going to play one final note, but then it doesn't. It just everything drops out completely. Nothing plays on measure 90, the very last measure of the piece, except the double bass pizzicatos. And those are playing um, just two notes, an octave apart. The bass note, um, I guess it'd be G-sharp major because we're ending in the minor. Yet, And I said G-sharp major. G-sharp minor because we're ending in the minor again. So we're ending on that minor triad, the G-sharp minor triad. And so it just plays the root, the two displays the root note the root note of that triad two of those notes an octave apart and that sounds like this and that's it just two little bass notes to end the entire piece and I kind of like that ending because you have again I said you have that harp kind of ascending um, and then you have all the other the uh, well not all the you have the other arpeggios in the cellos and the violas playing their arpeggios and they just kind of drop everything just drops out completely on measure ninety and there's nothing else there but those two notes. Um I've heard this happen before in some other in some other orchestra or orca- I've had this I've <sighs> I've heard this happen before in some other orchestra in some other orchestra pieces, so I'm definitely not the first one to do this. It's not really that innovative of a thing, but I think it's kind of fun to do. And I think it is one of the first times I've ever done it in one of my pieces. I think I, probably, I might have done it in some of my other pieces. I'm not sure. I'd have to go back and listen. I don't think I've done it quite like, you know, with just a pizz- this two pizzicato bass notes ending the entire piece, but it works, right? I think it works, especially since you were having the double bass playing the pizzicato for a while you know you're kind of expecting something on that measure 90 to end the piece and in this case it's just those double bass notes um and then that's the entire piece and that's also the entire episode um so i'll probably post this all as one entire episode instead of splitting it up um i don't know how how regularly i'm going to be able to get back into this but at least, you know, there's another episode, yay, and there's a score, hopefully you can look at the score, Um, just a little disclaimer on the score, you know, it is a digital score, so if you were going to have a play, if you were going to have a real orchestra play the piece, it would probably sound a bit different than it does on here, I don't know if it's not better or worse, I guess that depends on what orchestra you're having playing it, Um, but it would sound different, so don't, use the score as a guide for real orchestration just use it as a guide you know to this piece shut up that was my phone um yeah so just use it as a guide to this piece to the orchestration of this piece or to the orchestration of something created with Garritan personal orchestra with this kind of reverb or something because the reverb is important um and i guess that's it So thanks for listening. Hope this was somewhat informative. And I have no idea when the next episode is going to be, but that's all. Um, If I don't make another episode before Christmas, have a Merry Christmas um, and a Happy New Year. And that's all from me for now. Thanks for listening.